One of the things about the past that always fascinates me is how one minor detail going one way or the other changes the course of history for years, if not centuries, to come. For example, but for some minor political wranglings, the United States almost had the state of Jefferson. In 1859, in Arapahoe County of the Kansas Territory, a convention was held by pioneers in the frontier settlement of Aurora. Gold had been discovered in the region just the year before, and the settlers felt it was time to break away from the soon-to-be state of Kansas and form their own government. 167 representatives from 63 districts met in convention and drafted a territorial constitution. A referendum was held, a constitution was approved, and they formed a provisional government. Officials were elected, and the Jefferson Territorial Legislation was called into session on November 7th of 1859. During that time, 12 counties were established within the new territory, and the legislation went into recess on December 7th. But the fate of the Jefferson Territory was sealed the very next year when Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860. The elected territorial governor of Jefferson, Robert Williamson Steele, was a staunch Democrat and an openly vocal opponent of Lincoln and the Republican Party. Early in 1861, the Republican-controlled United States Congress quickly admitted that portion of the Kansas Territory east of the 25th Meridian into the Union as the state of Kansas, leaving the other portions of the now defunct Kansas Territory officially unorganized. Congress passed legislation making the territory of Jefferson null and void, and on February 26th of 1861, passed a bill organizing another territory in its place, and President Lincoln appointed a pro-Lincoln, pro-Union Republican from Missouri as the first territorial governor of Colorado. Coincidences, that's what makes history. 147 years following the formation of the Colorado Territory, another set of coincidences in the town of Boulder caused three men to meet. A ski bum from Ohio, a dirtbag rock climber from Georgia, and an immigrant brewer from Argentina and they formed a brewery at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. This is episode number six. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica, and hello everyone from the home office in Jefferson City, Missouri. I'm back from the cool and comfortable north shore of Lake Superior, and also in the woods and waters along the Gunflint Trail of Minnesota. I'm Alan Tatman, your host and the chief cat herder of the Bruise Traveler team. Today is Monday, July 2nd, so wishing all of our friends up in Canada, hey? Happy Canada Day, and yes, you still are friends. Also, a happy Independence Day to all of my fellow Americans. The USA will be 242 years old on Wednesday, only another eight years to 250, so here's to another two and a half centuries of freedom. Had a great trip up north, visited with the good folks up at Bent Paddle Brewing in Duluth and Surly Brewing in Minneapolis, and thanks to Clearwater Lodge and Outfitters for having us as guests for a couple of days. Uh, you can look forward to some reports from those places in the next few weeks. I also stopped into Grand Marais 
and checked out the Gunflint Tavern Brew Pub. And that, folks, didn't even scratch the surface of the Minnesota craft brewery scene. There's a bunch of great breweries up there. And uh, coming home, I was telling Tom Baker, who went up with me to take some photos and shoot some video, that we could probably have spent a week in just the Twin Cities alone. So I most assuredly will be heading back to Minnesota in the not-too-distant future. But today we're going out across the Great Plains to the Centennial State and the town of Boulder, Colorado. And we're going to have a visit with Upslope Brewing Company. We've also got a report from Tony Rehagen about a troublesome situation for the beer drinkers of Great Britain. And I've got a very timely RV rookie report regarding a situation that Tom and I found ourselves in last week at a convenience store along the Iowa-Minnesota state line. We've got a lot to unpack, and so time to get on down the road for the Rocky Mountains, and as Joe Walsh once said, the Rocky Mountain way is better than the way we had. And now we head on down the road with the bruised traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint, and who will we meet? Let's find out. This week we're in Boulder, Colorado. With 24 craft breweries and brew pubs, Boulder has more breweries per capita than any other town in the United States. And while the number of breweries is impressive, it's the quality and expectations of quality from the community that make Boulder the craft beer mecca of the Rocky Mountains. It began with Boulder Beer, founded in 1979, the first craft brewery to open in Colorado. And that was only the beginning of what would become a revolution along the front range of the Rockies. Only Vermont has a greater per capita ratio of breweries to people than the state of Colorado. Not surprisingly, Colorado craft brewers were the leading pioneers of moving from bottles towards aluminum cans, a lighter and more environmentally friendly way to package beer in a state where outdoor recreation is such an important part of life. And in Boulder especially, beer is an important part of the everyday conversation. Cresting the hill on Highway 36 into Boulder and gazing down at the red rooftops of the University of Colorado, the dramatic sandstone slabs of the flat irons and the snow-capped peaks beyond, it's easy to see why this intriguing town has been dubbed the city nestled between the mountains and reality. Just a 30-minute drive from Denver, tucked into the foothills of the Rockies, acres of vast open space roll into Boulder's quaint cityscape. National Geographic and the Today Show have both recognized Boulder as the happiest city in the United States. Forbes magazine recently noted Boulder tops the list of an etiquette expert's friendliest cities in the nation. Boulder has earned a spot on Gallup's highest well-being communities. And even back in 2011, CBS News wrote, if happiness is a state of mind, then Boulder is its capital. So what makes Boulderites such a happy bunch? It's likely a combination of factors. Sunny days, a laid-back lifestyle, natural beauty that's always within view, ultra-fresh dining and natural foods in one of the foodiest cities in the United States, the influence of the University of Colorado, a highly active culture, and enough craft beer to put a smile on anyone's face. With hiking trails, biking trails, walking trails, restaurants, bars, craft breweries, all within the shadow 
of the peaks of the beautiful Rocky Mountains and some of the best skiing in North America. If you can't find something in Boulder that makes you happy, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> we were there on a cold and dreary day back in late April, and we had snow in the morning, drizzle in the afternoon, but it was a great day. Got to meet up at Upslope Brewing with some good friends who now live in the Boulder area, and we had a chance to sit down and have a few beers with Matt Cutter and Danny Pages, co-founders and owners, along with Henry Wood, and we talked about the journey that brought Upslope to where it is today. So here it is, folks, your interview of the week. Now it's time for the interview of the week, and let's meet our guests. Whether they be a craft brewer or brewing advocate, they're sure to have a story you'll want to hear. And now, here's Alan and his guest. Hi, guys. We're here in Boulder, Colorado, with Matt Cutter and Danny Pages, founders of Upslope Brewing Company. Guys, thanks for coming on to the program. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for coming. That is delicious. This is nice. This is nice. There's good malt forward. Yep, nice, well-balanced, 4% ABV on nitro. It's, it's a little bit more than a British mild. Yes. Yeah, a little bit more than that. Not quite a bitter, but I like it. This is very drinkable. So That's interesting that you say that only because we, uh, we've brewed versions of this beer over the years and sold it as a mild, mm-hmm. and it didn't sell no, very well at all. No, because people don't understand what that is. <laughs> Most so, Americans, oh, mild beer, you know, so yeah. And we don't we don't name our beers. Uh, that's right. part of our branding. Uh, the idea came up to call this a Nitro Pub Ale. That's great. My my wife and I were talking about that on, on our way over here. It's like, you know, they all of your names are descriptive, so you know exactly when you order a beer or you go into the store and you get a six-pack, you know what that beer is. That was very purposeful. Mainly in our branding from the beginning, we looked into different options. We liked the idea of naming a beer imparts an idea that I have upon the consumer. So instead of calling it, you know, naming it after a, a fish or a dog or an experience or something like that, our idea was, and we have very simple branding, was here's our beer, here's the style, you make the experience what you want it to be. Uh, we're not going to name it and impart an idea or an experience in your head. We're just going to let you drink that and develop your own experience with it. One of the things that I've noticed about your website and now here at your uh, tap room at Flatiron Park in Boulder is that you guys are... I don't want to say minimalist, but you're you're straightforward. There's not there's nothing here that's kind of diverting you away from the beer. Transparent as well. I, I would add to that list of descriptions that, right. that you put together. You see, we put as much glass as possible between the tap room and the brewery. We want the experience to be very transparent and real. You know, you might see you know, a brewer slipping on the floor out back or, or, you know, someone in the cellar that's struggling to get a hose up on a tank or something. We want you to see that, to have the manufacturing experience be a part of the experience here at the tap room as well. And for you to be drinking this pint and knowing that it came from one of those tanks on the other side of the wall, it's a different feeling. Let me start out with your story. You guys came from various backgrounds. You, uh Danny, Matt, and Henry, 
what were you guys doing before Upslope? Daniel, let's start with you. What was your story? I was brewing in, in Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego, Ushuaia, a city on the world. And for 10 years, was teaching as well chemistry over there, working for a research institute of scientific research uh, there for some doctors working for them and um, yeah created kind of science and brewing and also doing outdoor uh, sports climbing skiing hiking and that kind of stuff and that fits into the ethos of your company yeah yeah we'll that's talk about that thing some more. I think as the three of us was the outdoor connection so, so Matt what about you where you came from, Cleveland? Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, the west side, uh, Rocky River, and then um, basically moved to Colorado after college to ski. Ski days, work nights. Got a job in a uh, Mexican restaurant as a prep cook and met my wife. She was bartending at that same restaurant. Uh, mm. Our 25th wedding anniversary is coming up this fall. It was, it was in coming to Boulder that I really discovered craft beer. and in 1991, which was very much still emerging, even in Colorado, right. where it's, um, you know, had this well-established from the very beginning, and uh, got into project management and home brewing, did that for a number of years, and put a business plan together in 96, and shelved it, uh, because I didn't have any money, and I was starting a family, and didn't know how something like that would ever get off the ground, and it was upon rewriting that business plan in 2007, not as a, I'm going for it, but more as an exercise to see where the industry was, what the, what the marketing plan would look like, the concept, the financials, and upon finishing that, started to look for some partners that were good at what I was not good at just because I'm a home brewer right. who can put, uh, put together a business plan and put a second mortgage on my house uh, to start a business. It doesn't mean I, I know how to start a brewery. Danny and I met through an industry website called Pro Brewer. It was the go-no-go no go for me. And it was, uh, it, was, it was actually very frightening because you had this idea that I had had for 11 years at that point, knowing that this was the right partnership that was going to get it off the ground successfully. Six months later, Henry came on board, met through our branding company, Anthem Branding, and uh, in a mutual friend, it was obvious that uh, that this was going to be. The What's team. Henry's role here? I, I kind of figure you you're the home brewer, kind of an inspirational kind of guy. You're the science the scientist. You've got the background in science and how to. The brewing, so so he fits he fits in the gaps that you don't have. What's Henry's role in this? Director of sales and marketing. Fantastic. Yep. Uh, Danny for years has called yeah. this the three legs of the stool. Yeah, yeah. I have this, uh, when I started brewing Argentina uh, with different partnerships. Uh, we have that same structure. And when I meet Matt, I talk about like, well, we'll need the other third of the of the leg of the table. You know? Right. So, uh, still, you can do it without that, but it, it works really well. And I think after 10 years working together, uh, you can tell that's a really solid team because everyone can focus on different areas. Matt keep focused on the vision of the company, where the company goes, all the administration and financials and all the stuff, plus, plus 
to me the most important format is, is that vision, you know, where, where the company should be and where, where it goes. And, and, and you need a lot of focus and time for that. And I can focus on production without being worried about sales. And, and Henry, our partner, is focusing on sales and marketing. And, and having that, that division is, is really powerful there. And, and we could do and achieve a lot in a really short period of time. Um, and thanks to that, I would say, division of fo uh, focus in the different areas. Um, yeah, that's great. So the heart, the soul, and the brains all come together. Yeah. Why did you guys end up in Boulder? Because none of you are from here. But, uh, Henry's from uh, Georgia? Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. I, I guess the, the outdoor component uh, was... Um, Matthew's one. Well, you can tell your story, but he just, one of his reasons is because he liked the skiing, the bike, and biking, and all the thing. And and my wife, at that time, was my girlfriend. Was uh, from Colorado. We met in Patagonia, and and then she said, "Oh well, we maybe we can find a shop here." And like to me, it was like, kind of, no way. You know, I have all my stuff there, but. Um, but I guess uh, uh, she was living in Denver at the time, and, and Matt was already in Boulder, and, and, and she knew Boulder, and, and I came to, to meet Matt, and I saw that's wonderful because it's near to the mountain, like in uh, Ushuaia was living. So to me, that was really important, maybe some silly, but, but having the mountain really close, the, right. close from your you, you know, is... Can't see them today, yeah. but they're out there. <laughs> I, saw, I saw them yesterday. Yeah, we have this great view of the mountains from the patio that you can't see it's right kinda, now. It's kind of drizzled. We had, it's April 21st. They had snow this morning. And tomorrow it's going to be 70 and sunny. So I think you touched on this earlier, Matt. How'd you end up in Boulder? When I graduated from college in 91, it was a recession, and I wasn't that excited about jumping into a career. So I backpacked in Europe for three months, and then I remember coming back to Cleveland, talking to a buddy of mine, and I said, hey, Corey, what you doing? And he's like, living in my mom's basement? <laughs> I said, we had talked about going out to Colorado. What do you say? He says, let's go. So um, the intent was to move to a ski town, or people had told us about Boulder. I had never been to Boulder before. It was August. We figured it'd be easier to find a job. Um, in Boulder rather than in a ski town in the month of August. Sure. So by default, we came here. Yeah, the first winter was uh, amazing. Got a lot of ski days, you know, working nights in the restaurant. And then, um, and then I realized everything else Colorado had to offer and camping and backcountry skiing and mountain biking and road biking and uh, music festivals and all of these things that we try to do as much as possible when we're not working and, and not taking care of our families. Sure. And Henry? Henry was originally working some uh, outdoor um, with some outdoor companies back east, and then became a, a really a dirtbag climber, and okay. living on the back of his pickup truck and started climbing back in I, I'm pretty sure it's North Carolina and then came out west to work in Wyoming for Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership School. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. He and his, I don't think they were married yet, uh, MK was very interested in Boulder, and so the two of them settled in Boulder and 
Henry was working for um, an experiential uh, certification uh, company at the time. So if you have an outdoor program, you need, um, you need insurance or you need to make sure that uh, you're protected well you know, for your people, for all things that can happen in the outdoors. It was this company that would audit you and certify you. And Henry was doing sales for that company when we met and he was looking for a change. We all go through journeys in life and we come to forks in the road and you know who we run into and what we run to. We don't realize it at, at the time that these little insignificant meetings can have so much of a greater impact on you later on down the road. That's right. Yeah. It can change your path in life. Absolutely. And it sounds like you, the three of you, your paths diverged and it created this wonderful thing you're doing here. What year was uh, Upslope founded? Uh, it was founded in 2008, November. Yeah, we had a... Uh, because actually we've, yeah, absolutely was, we were working before. Okay. That was the opening. Okay, was opening was November of 2008. Yeah. Okay. So, but it was, um, so Danny and I met in January. So your 10th anniversary is coming up here. Right around the corner. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we were working might have how to many you, you might have to swing yeah, back for it. Have to it's going to be a blowout. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, we were working six months before opening, no, something like that. Yeah, Danny and I met in January. Uh, he had to go back to Argentina for a little bit after we looked for space a little bit here. He said, let me know when you find space. So early April 2008, I signed a one-year lease on 2,200 square feet up in North Boulder, our Lee Hill location, which we still have to this day. And Danny immediately wrote me back to the bought my plane ticket, I'll be there in two weeks. Fantastic. So from there, um, we, took about, we took about six months, six, seven months to um, carve out the brewery and buy used equipment and uh, develop our recipes over that summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, our brew house showed up in September, October, did not, um, <laughs> yeah, was, needed some work to yeah. get going. Yeah, we started with little minds. How many beers did you offer when you when you opened? Oh, just two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pale ale and India pale ale. A pale yeah. ale and an yeah, IPA. Yeah. Was it 2008 and and was a crisis? We didn't start with so much money. It's funny because some people see apps of today and they think that we start with all the money like they used to open breweries now. Um, and we start with almost no money and and. And I just would limit the resources, and then I'm used to, to that in, in, in South America, so it wasn't uh, strange for me that. Um, and, and it's a good way to, to do it, I feel, because you, you go through the whole process, you know, until you, you start getting right. uh, more resources. Yeah, it was just two beers, just the IPA and the pale, and simple. Uh, we're also, also one, 2008. Everybody knows here was a crisis. Oh, and, it, it, worldwide. Yeah, and everybody was looking at us like crazy. Starting uh, a business. I mean, starting a business yeah. at that time. And I told Matt and the other brewery I opened in Argentina. I was in 2000, 2001 when was we have five presidents in a week. <laughs> so, was five, in Argentina, oh, yeah. you had five presidents in one in week. In one week. <laughs> so it was another crisis over there. And... and that, that brewery still is open, so so I, I thought and I told Matt like I don't think that would be the excuse to not do it, and because we have some some obviously concerns, you know, uh, but uh, also Colorado wasn't being hit like other like Michigan other states at that time, so so but we're we're too much uh, 
people afraid at that time. So it was a good time to start for us right. because with limited resources and 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 that condition, with no 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 being afraid, uh, give us a heads up. Uh, right. You know, a little bit to be a little bit ahead from other uh, businesses and open later. We were the first brewery at that time open in, in Boulder in 13 years. In 13 years. Wow. Yeah, and and obviously everybody was looking at us like crazy because also we. We did two beers, in, but those two beers were in cans, and one was an IPA. Nobody, no crap brewery in the country was putting IPAs and can, cans. Well, everything was glass. Yeah, everything was glass, and 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 even Oscar Blue was the only one of the only brewers putting beer in cans, crap beer in cans. They didn't have an IPA in a can, so everybody said, "No, you should not do that. that that's not right." And and like. Um, so we, we, we know we, we like to bring this to outdoors and we want to have good beers. The name Upslope. Why don't you tell our listener where, where did that come from? I had never heard of the word Upslope before and started to get to hear people talk about the Upslope storms that come through the Front Range. And so the phenomenon is uh, this weather pattern that's unique to the Front Range of Colorado in which moisture uh, comes up from the Gulf of Mexico, cold air, cold air comes down from the northwest. They clash here on the front range, and the weather turns around. Instead of going west to east, it goes east to west, up the slope of the front range of Colorado, having the same effect that happens in the Cascades up in Seattle and, and Portland, where they get all that rain and moisture. But here, when it goes east to west, it goes um, up the slope of the Front Range, dumping. Sometimes we'll get these 14, 16, 18-inch storms, uh, especially this time of year, that um, that create uh, moisture mostly in the times uh, in the in the way of snow. And I loved the um, the locality of that word. Um, I thought that was something that um, said, "Yeah, hey, we're we're from here." Um, it wasn't widely used, and I, I liked it. I felt the word was a little edgy as well, and, um, and the chaos and excitement that comes with an upslope storm. I thought that was the perfect um, combination of ideas around this one word to, to hang our hat on. Very unique. Yep. Besides here, are you brewing the other location? At Lehill, you bet. That's the original brewery. The original brewery, yeah. When did you open this taproom brewery? Four or five years ago. So, to, yeah, 2013, February is when we started. That was our first brew here. The canning line took a little bit longer to get online, and uh, Danny and his team were working very hard at that. And then um, we opened up the taproom in April 2013. Okay. How many brew lines do you have? I mean, how many beers are you now, brewing? Now on top we have 24. 24? But no. we are brewing 70 different types of coffee. Seven, seven, seven zero. zero a year. Yeah. Wow. 70 new recipes yeah. we developed um, last year, and I think the year before that it was 72. So that's what Lee Hill is to us now. It's R&D, it's barrel aging, it's yeah. sours, it's a seven barrel brew house. It's testing out um, new hop varieties, new yeast strains, new adjuncts that we've never used before. Mm -hmm. And so it's become this playground that allows us to innovate. And uh, that's where the mad scientists work. That's yeah, where the math scientists work. It's kind of our lab, uh, yeah, experimental. So most of your beer comes out of this 
facility a big, here? A big volume, the, the ones that go in, in cans, and also still we brew different types here. As we have, like, and I'm sure if someone is a brewer and works in a brewery, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, like, we, are, we were working, like, this month, with, we are working in this facility with five different strains of yeast. Five different strains of yeast. Yeah, and that's it's a complicated thing. You need to be really careful. Uh, fortunately, we have a good lab here and, and good equipment, and then we have a good practices and, and a lot of standardization before we get into that kind of production mode uh, with five different strains of yeast. Sure. It's not like we started right away. Like I said, we started with just two different type of beers when we opened, but but that, that's a good thing. And I say when you when you start from really little and you expand, you, you go through all those process knowing what you are you are capable of handling and, and not, you know, so. We probably have 40 different beers available today. Uh, yeah, between the hill and here and the cans and, yeah. How many barrels last year did you guys put out? Uh, 31,000 barrels. 31,000. Yeah. So you're a regional brewery. Where's your distribution? How many states are you in? We're, uh, we're only in six states, um, mostly very underpopulated okay. states. You need to come to Missouri. Well, you know, it, we should talk. We, we should, should talk. talk yeah. So how many, which states are you in? So Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, basically all along the Rocky Mountain spine. From the very beginning, we wanted to make sure that we grew our business and our brand very deep before going wide. And for the longest time, it was just Boulder. And then it was Boulder County. And then it was a few stores in Denver. And then it was more in Denver and a little bit in Fort Collins. And then we very gradually developed our brand in that way. And it's still a philosophy to this day that we follow. We think that, especially in markets like today, the retailers, they have limited shelf space. Which beer are they going to put on the shelf? One that um, they can make more revenue off that limited shelf space because it's moving? That's what we think. That's the best for us. We have sales reps in all of our territories. It can be very expensive to do that. In sure. some of our territories, like Montana, where there's not a lot of people, and there's a lot of great beer out of Montana from the, the Montana breweries. Um, but yeah, we have a rep. Um, in Missoula that's um, representing us in that territory. And that's, that's important to us, um, to continue going deeper and deeper and deeper in our existing geographies before expanding. So what's your, your number one selling beer? Craft Lager. The Craft Lager. Yep. It's a transition beer. Yes, and it's all barley, no adjuncts. It, it'll taste good all the way to the bottom of the glass. It's what beer used, used to, to taste like, <laughs> yes, before Prohibition. Yes. And that's True. another thing that we pioneering uh, with Absolute. At that time, when I moved to the United States, it was all about hops and how much hops you can put in beer. And ales. Right. You know, and then, and then it's like, why? Why not something different? Why would craft brewers can you know do just a simple lager and 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 we come out with that and people were like also looking kind of skeptical to us. We have a surprise ourselves too. Like like we didn't know. We we thought like hey, it should be a customer out there for this type of beers, um, but but we were surprised about how much uh, people we yeah we. We, we get interested in, in simple beers, you know, no complex beers. 
Um, and, and sure enough, the market came out later, and, and you can see now a lot of brewers brewing lagers, pilsners, and, and that kind of stuff. But it was all about uh, ales and, and hops. So I remember it was... A number of beers. It was spring 2010, and we had a little bit of capacity to be doing some experimentation at that point. Uh, although most of it was on the homebrew level, but we we did nine different iterations of a lager using different yeast strains, uh, different malts, different hops, and we reached this beer that we really, really enjoyed using a certain strain of yeast, and Danny said, you know what, I just want to try one more thing before we decide this is, this is our beer. And he went down the path with another yeast strain uh, that we didn't know much about. And I will never forget walking in the brewery one afternoon and everybody had cups of this lager beer. And I was like, what is going on? It's like, well, remember that beer that Danny wanted to just do one more thing to? Uh, we nailed it. This is this that's is craft lager. this is our craft, craft lager. lager, yeah. And and that strain of yeast is the is we are the brewery that use the most in the world. I'm uh, one of that yeast. Uh, so it's pretty unique yeast. Ten years, you guys have been going strong. What's been your biggest challenge in this business? Well, I guess three of us have different challenges in the different areas. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, we, we were uh, focused on different areas. So obviously, to me, was capacity in production with limited resources. So mm -hmm. my, my partner and, and so our partner was, I'm sure, struggling. Like, I need more beer, I need more beer. Now, now I think the, the pressure changed and this market now is saturated. Uh, and I think now the pressure is on him and a little more relief. <laughs> yeah. Matt, what do you think? Along the lines of what Danny said, Danny w was under great pressure for many, many years, and it seems that the baton has been passed to Henry. And Henry is looking for smart ways to, to sell more beer, to expand the brand, to to develop the right sales strategies that are in line with the kinds of strategies that we've talked about here in this podcast. So we could open up 20 states this year. Sure we could, and we could grow very, very quickly. You know, we're not gonna do that because it's, uh, we think it's the best interest of our brand to grow it very organically and to not make short-term decisions that are contrary to our long-term values. We still sell. That's 80, admirable. Yeah, still we sell eighty percent of our beer in Colorado. To right. give you an idea how deep we we are in our in our um, yeah way of distribution. And guess what? We're the sixth largest craft brewer in Colorado out of three hundred and fifty, and that includes brands like Oscar. New Belgium, Oscar Blues, Odell, a a Avery, Avery hand. Left Hand, Left Hand, breweries that have been around for a long, long time and are in many more states than we are. One last thing I want to talk to you guys about, your conservation measures. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I would say it started very early on when uh, Danny was designing the brew house. We set it up in a way that with a heat exchanger, you can cool down your wart and then recirculate uh, the water back in the hot liquor tank. So that was a very important design feature that he wanted us to follow. And I'm like, great. So it saved uh, 217 gallons of water every time we did 
a seven barrel batch of beer. So the, the industry standard is somewhere between four and 10 times water to beer. Uh -huh. We're at 4.1 and we're still looking for more improvements on that. Okay. Yeah. And you're also you're involved with a number of con like trout trout unlimited trout unlimited yeah and so, yeah a number of other and, and tell tell our listeners what what's your donation thing you're so doing um, the campaign we started it was with the craft lager can back in May of 2010 uh, it was with at that time it was with Colorado Trout Unlimited because our beer was only available in Colorado Henry uh, was good friends uh, with a gentleman uh, Tom Reed. He and Tom were talking about it. Tom is affiliated with Trout Unlimited. You know, Henry came back with this idea. He's like, you know, what if we donated 1% of, not the profits, the revenues. The gross. Yeah, the gross revenues. Which is the same thing, by the way, that Patagonia does. Oh, I, didn't, I yeah. didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, and, and being a businessman myself, people don't understand. That's a lot of money that could go as, as the owner. That's money that would go into your pocket, and you're giving that 1% back to causes you believe in. Yes. The water here in Colorado is phenomenal. I think that's part of the reason that the, the, the craft beer culture here is so strong. We have amazing water here that comes up uh, from the mountains, the snowmelt, the little streams that go to the larger streams. I love on your cans, it's <laughs> ingredients. Instead of water, you say snowmelt. I, I didn't know if the TTB would accept that one or not, but right. they did. No, I love it. You know, right out of the gate. And it. so ever since then, we decided to, that that was important for people to realize that that is our water. That is where it comes from. It comes up from the hills right up here. Well, you guys are to be commended for your advocacy and your commitment to environmental and conservation. Uh, Causes. But you? It makes sense on the same uh, page where, like, we like to go outside. We like the outdoors. We like the, you know, being being there and in mm. the forest, uh, fishing in, in a river, and you know, like we, we want to keep that the way uh, it, it is. So we are trying to do everything we can, you know, in that in that direction. Like the same with the cardboard boxes, and people maybe don't 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 know it so much, but all our cardboard boxes. Certified that is forestry source, sustainable source, you know, and, and that kind of thing, you know, like, and it, and it is a challenge, but but yeah, we want to keep the outdoors like like there are. And and that from the very beginning has been important to us. At the core of that is the idea that the the planet is not better off because we decide to open a brewery in Boulder, Colorado. Right. It's actually worse off because we've decided to do that. Right. We're consuming resources, we're emitting CO2 from our fermenters. Yeah. So it's our it's our responsibility to mitigate that as much as possible because we randomly decided to do this. So in in most of our decisions we're looking at um, the greener alternatives. Hey, can we afford to get a 90% efficient boiler that we have here, when it, when it broke the budget by $20,000, Danny felt very strongly about we need to do that, and so that's, that's what we decided to do. We have a sustainability coordinator here that uh, is, is metering all of our water, tracking our electrical usage. We have LED lighting throughout. We're within the next, well, nine months, uh, we're gonna have solar panels up on our roof to offset uh, our cold room electrical usage. It's, it's always in the conversation to say, 
well, okay, is this the, the greenest, most sustainable alternative for us? We're also on the cusp of being B Corp certified, which is very, very important to us, which is a message not only about our sustainability initiatives, but also about how we run our company, how we treat our people. Are we a responsible corporate member? You're to be commended, fellas. I, I have a lot of respect for what you're doing here, and I love your beer. So, before we get out of here, five questions, the lightning round. Famous mountains. Are you ready? All right. All right. Mount Fuji or Kilimanjaro? Mount Fuji. Okay. Mount Fuji, too. All right. Mount Blanc or the Matterhorn? Mount Blanc. Mount Blanc. Okay. Mount Olympus or Vesuvius? Well, I'm, I'm going Vesuvius. It's, it's, it's hotter. <laughs> <laughs> El Capitan or Pikes Peak? El Capitan. El Capitan. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Sorry, Colorado. <laughs> and last but not least, Denali or Mount Everest? Mm. Denali. Denali. Yeah, Denali. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You're right. You're 100% all right. All right. Matt. Thanks, Alan. Danny, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And so long from Boulder, Colorado. Thanks again to Matt and Danny and all of the great staff at Upslope Brewing's Flatiron Park Brewery. Uh, the interview was a little longer than usual, but it was a great talk with those guys. They were fantastic. Uh, sorry we weren't able to meet Henry, but I've got Upslope's 10th anniversary celebration marked on the Brews Traveler calendar. We will be there that first weekend of November. And hopefully we'll get to meet Henry then. And also I want to say thanks to our friends, Bryant and Deidre Fuchs, who live out uh, the Colorado way. They were so kind to let Marilee and I park Brulissies in their driveway and they opened their home to us. Also a shout out to Nola Salisbury and Deb Ipson Jones, old friends of mine from our college days way back when, longer than we want to recall who came by Upslope to say hi and share a few beers. It's always good to see old friends. I believe uh, there also may be some footage, uh, video footage of me out there singing some Springsteen and some Irish songs. So uh, to the bartenders at the tap room, thanks for hosting us, and I hope I didn't wear out our welcome. It was a great fun afternoon at one of Boulder's great craft breweries, and if Boulder is the mecca of craft beer in the country, then by extension... Upslope is one of America's great craft breweries. Upslope Brewing has two tap rooms in Boulder, Flatiron Park and Lee Hill. The Flatiron Park facility is located at 1898 South Flatiron Court and is open seven days a week from 11 a.m. until 10 p.m. The Lee Hill Tap Room is located at 1501 Lee Hill Road and is open seven days a week, 2 to 10 p.m. To check out all of the things going on at Upslope Brewing, check out the calendar and events schedule on their website, upslopebrewing.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 yeah. ha, hey! Cardi on scale of buco. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Hey, Tony. How's it going? Not bad. How are you doing? Not too bad. How was the trip? It was great. Good to be home back here in JCMO. You know, no matter where you travel, uh, where you go, it's always fun to travel. I enjoy traveling. But uh, coming home to your own shower and your own bed, back to uh, your own easy chair and kicking your feet up and have a nice craft 
beer. It's always a nice way to end a trip. Totally, I completely agree. Best what, part is coming home. Yeah. What about you? What's going? What are your? Where are you going down the road this week or that? Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be heading to Nashville for a for a story uh, down there for uh, a travel story. Stayed in a hotel down there, so yeah, I'm excited about that. But other than that, I've, I kind of get to lay low a little bit. I went oh. back to the homestead in St. Elizabeth to visit the parents uh, over the weekend, um, and I think we're just going to kind of lay low for the fourth. Yeah, so you're back home with Aaron and the girls. Yep, yep, we're back here. I'm good. Yeah, I'm. I don't know who's coming over. Somebody always will call us and say. Uh, are you going to be watching the fireworks? And so, I'm you, sure you got a pretty good view from where you are. Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. I wish uh, they get rid of some of those uh, power lines and be better, but uh, you know that's where it goes. Anyway, so what do you got for us this week? Well, I was I was working on a, a different story, but then uh, something came across that it's it's a damn emergency is what it is, and so it needs to be it needs to be dealt with forthwith. Basically, there is a beer shortage in England. Uh, and that's, I mean, that, that's enough. Anytime you see beer shortage, you wonder how it spreads. And even though it's way across the pond, um, first of all, we look up, I think we look up to the Western Europeans uh, as beer drinkers. Uh, and, you know, you always wonder if it can spread. And, and uh, I was reading, this story's all over the news, but uh, Amy Singh from the New York Times did a, did a piece on it that, that I got a lot of this information from. But uh, like Witherspoons, for instance, uh, which operates nearly 900 pubs across Britain, said that some of its sites... We're no longer serving uh, brands like John Smith's beer or the Strongbow cider. Both of those are Heineken. Um, and Booker, a major UK wholesaler, uh, confirmed to NBC News that it's limiting customers uh, at bars and grocers to 10 cases of beer per brand a day. Um, so it's a, it's, 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 this is an emergency. 10 cases per brand per day per person. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they drink a lot over there. Not, maybe not quite. Well, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you never know. Um, I, yeah. But uh, it is due to a shortage in an ingredient, uh, but one that you don't think about as often. It's not the hops. It's not the barley. It's not even the water. But it's it's the bubbles. It's a CO2 shortage. Wait a minute. And, a, car- yeah. a, a shortage of carbon dioxide. A shortage of carbon dioxide. I thought we had a problem with there being too much CO2 in the atmosphere. I know where this right. is going, but yeah. Right. No, exactly. And, that, and that's, and that's kind of the irony of it. But uh, as you know, like CO2 is, a, it's, it's everywhere and it's a major player in food production. It's used for soft drinks and uh, it's used to extend the shelf life of food, you know, through dry ice and flash freezing and other refrigerants. Um, it's even used to stun animals before they're taken to slaughter, which is something I didn't look in much deeper to. I didn't really want to. But yada, 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 beer. Um, carbon dioxide, it, it has many sources, but food and safety requirements mean that you can't just pull it from the, from, from the atmosphere because uh, too much will kill you. It's, 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 you know, carbon dioxide, even though it's everywhere, uh, it, it, it's pretty dangerous if, if you put in too many. Well, uh, yeah. If you get too much of it. If, if, if it displaces the oxygen levels, then, yeah, you're dead. No, exactly. And then, so basically they, they found that the the safest and most regulated place to get it, where most of these places get it, is because it's, it's also a byproduct of ammonia fertilizer that, that farmers use in, on their, in their fields. Oh, I didn't uh, know. Yeah. It's, it's, so apparently, like, the companies that sell that gas can acquire it from the ammonia plants, and then they, they clean it and purify it. And then it's just safe, you know, by, by safety standards. Um, and the problem is, is that... Several plants in Britain and elsewhere in Europe that produce this fertilizer have shut down for regular maintenance and renova- like in renovation periods that kind of coincide with the, the warmest months, with the summer. 
Um, and then on top of that, there have been technical difficulties in other plants that have kind of squeezed supplies. And then, and then you, you factor in the heat wave, you know, which is hitting Europe just like it's hitting us all in the northern hemisphere. Um, you know, that you, you, you want more beer, you want more soft drinks, you want more food. Uh, so the demand's up, supply's down. Uh, and basically, it's, it's just causes CO2 shortage. Um, and NBC News reported that British plants were running at 20% capacity compared to the usual seasonal average of just 70%. So it's a 50% drop. Uh, and CNN Money even said that uh, in the UK, there's only one ammonia plant that is operating at normal capacity of all of them. So uh, that's that's what's causing that's what's causing the shortage. Now the good news is that uh, some that some brewers have been able to, unlike other food sources, uh, some brewers have been able to kind of mitigate the shortfall because they have these uh, carbon dioxide recovery systems that allow them to kind of reuse the gas created in the brewing process. Um, but the the best the the best forecast I could find was uh, that food and drink industry groups expect the shortage to last at least a few more weeks. Um, and so that's taken. And England is in the World Cup, of course. So people like to have a pint and watch their their football team. Um, right. If they run too far, they're they're not they're gonna have to be be thirsty doing it. I have paid no attention to the World Cup this year. <laughs> the U.S. nor Ireland is in it, so I don't give a shotgun Willie. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not emotionally invested in it, but it's it's fun. After the the, the oh, it's, it's it, the the quality of the of the game is games are is fantastic but i'm not really following i i don't have a dog in the hunt anyway back to the co2 thing is this going to uh is this going to come over the atlantic and land up on our shores it shouldn't it seems to be a unique uh mixture of factors that have kind of that have kind of hit uh hit the british especially because other european countries are have been able to kind of mitigate the the problem through one of those factors other it's kind of that three-headed monster um with technical difficulties, kind of just random, bizarre technical see, difficulties, and then see, the time of year. If they hadn't left the European Union. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, but on the other side, people can argue about, oh, it's all these these health and safety restrictions. You just need to take take the restrictions off and just let let them pull the CO two from the air and see what happens, and then put it in our food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I don't know about that. Well, as long yeah, as right? it, yeah, as long as it doesn't hit Dublin before we hit, get there in October, we'll be great. So Amen I, to that, brother. hopefully Ireland's not having that issue. So that's right. So Great Britain, the United Kingdom is having a CO2 shortage, which is affecting the brewing industry. This is true. Oh, well, Poor. But the good news is there's no whiskey shortage. Well, yeah. Well, interesting stuff. Oh, sorry to hear about our, our English brethren having to suffer with only 10 cases per person per day. <laughs> Right? Right, right. It's a different society. They drink all day. And, right. and, and you know, God bless them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go. I've got to get out and clean out the RV. I, Tom and I, you know, a couple I of... I can't ba- imagine. Yeah, a couple of guys and a dog in an RV. Oof. Yeah, well, no, it was nice and cool up there. We left Grand Marais on Thursday morning. It was like 70 degrees, and that was like yeah. mid-morning. And then, uh, of course... As soon as we got down to the Twin Cities, it was it was ninety, and that yeah. they're on the shore of Lake Superior. It's like a giant refrigerator. That water never gets warm. I mean, it stays cold all summer long, and it's just they've got their microclimate there, and it's 
during the heat of the summer, it's just a lovely place to go. Yeah, I, oh yeah, and I was following yeah. you on Facebook, and I was just I was imagining myself. Oh, it's just, it's just beautiful, brutal, as you know. Yeah, the big big shout out to the folks up at uh, Bent Paddle Brewing, Surly Brewing in the Twin Cities, uh, Bent Paddles in Duluth, and then uh, our friends up at Clearwater Lodge up uh, on the Gunflint Trail, who uh, hosted us for a couple of days. So anyway, Tony, I'm gonna let you go. Tony Rehagen, uh, freelance journalist. Uh, Thanks again, Tony, for your report. And, you know, God save the queen. Amen, brother. Thanks much. All right, man. Talk to you later. Here's Alan with the RV Rookie Tips for Travelers as you head down the road. So real quickly here, I have an RV rookie report, and this is timely, and it might help you. Last week, while Tom and I were driving north up to Minnesota, we stopped in Clear Lake, Iowa, around 3 a.m. to take on diesel. Now, Brulissi's has what they call a capless fuel tank, which after researching, I found out are becoming more and more common on all vehicles. You stick the nozzle into the hole, and it has a spring-loaded flap, and then when you push the nozzle in, and it folds back, and then when you pull the nozzle out, the flap springs back shut. That's how it supposed to work. But many nozzles at fueling stations have a flange, and if that flange is pushed beyond the spring-loaded flap, the flange will catch on the flap and you can't pull it out. It's stuck. And your football! So I stuck the nozzle in, paying no attention that there might be a flange there. It went in. Then it made some weird loud click that I hadn't heard before. And when I finished fueling, I discovered that I was in big that I had inextricably stuck the nozzle in the fuel tank. Now, Tom, who was with me, calmly Googled capless fuel tanks, and we had to find a small, thin, non-ferrous rod or something like that. And the reason for non-ferrous is that you don't want the possibility of a spark, because then things could go bluey, and you're like the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons, and you're really... Uh-oh! Well, anyway, the rod, you push it down along the top of the nozzle, and it'll push up the flap, and then you can extract the nozzle. We scrambled around trying to find something to do the job for about five minutes, which doesn't seem like a lot of time, except when you're panicked and stuck at a come-and-go with your nozzle stuck in the monkey lover gas tank in northern Iowa at 3 a.m. in the morning. Anyway, Tom went through his fishing gear, and he found a pair of stainless steel forceps, which we attempted to use to unstick the flange from the flap with little success at first, but we kept trying and trying again, and sometimes a blind hog finds an acorn and click and pop, it came out. So, from that point on, every time I fueled up, I looked at every nozzle to inspect and see if it had a flange before inserting it into the capless tank, and if it does, make certain that that flange does not go past the uh, flap or it'll get caught. So there's your RV rookie tip of the week. I am not a complete idiot. I promise you, some parts are missing. You've been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers. So that's it, folks. Thanks again to everyone at Upslope Brewing for uh, having us over. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. We really appreciate that, too. And if you want to show us some love, please give us a five-star rating and a warm review over on iTunes, Apple Podcast. 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruise Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at the Bruise Trav LR. I've kind of neglected the blog over the last couple of weeks because I've just been busy getting this stuff together for you guys. But I am working on it this week and I should have something up at thebrucetraveler.com. And if I get it done this week, I'll put it on Facebook and let you know. Thanks again to Tom Baker of Bravo Creative, the videographer for The Bruise Traveler, for taking some great video and photos while we were up in Minnesota. We will soon have the YouTube channel up and going. The soundtrack for The Bruise Traveler is so graciously provided by our friends at Gaelic Storm. Check out all of their music and their new album, Go Climb a Tree, on iTunes or at their website, GaelicStorm.com. And while you're there, check out their tour schedule. This weekend, Sunday, July 8th, they're playing at the Irish American Heritage Festival in Chicago. Tickets and information available at GaelicStorm.com. Marketing consultation for the Brews Traveler is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. I'm home this week, folks, but we'll be back on the road beginning July 9th or maybe the day after. Tune in to our next episode to find out where I will be. So if I don't see you at your favorite tap room or pub, I'll be right here next week on the podcast. And of course, as always, merrily, you are the measure of my dreams. I love you, honey. Thanks, everybody, and so long for just a while. Stuck.
stockings and socks and a twisted trombone Paisley parasol, purple lampshade Useless telephone, coats and jumpers Slingshots, bottle tops, hammers and cards A coffee table and a Pepsi crate Bag and bone man, picking up the tin can Throwing it all in this donkey wagon Bag and bone man, coming down the street Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home. That wildness is a necessity. John Muir, born April 21, 1838, Dunbar, East Lothian, Scotland, died December 24, 1914, Los Angeles, California.